This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Friends by Grace Paley, which was published in The New Yorker in June of 1979. Well, girls, excuse me, I mean, ladies, it's time for me to rest. She took Susan's arm and continued that awful walk to her bed. We didn't move. We had a long journey ahead of us and had expected a little more comforting before we set off. The story was chosen by Gish Jen, who's the author of nine books, including the novel The Resisters and the story collection Thank You, Mr. Nixon, which was published in February. Hi, Gish. Hi, Deborah. So welcome. Thank you for doing this. It's my pleasure. Um, When we talked about this, you right away said you really wanted to read this story, Friends, by Grace Paley. Can you tell me why? Yeah. Well, actually, I have three reasons. The first reason is sentimental. I did know Grace, and I loved her. And when I read these words, I see her and, of course, hear her. I guess I say it's kind of my Madeline. You know, my memories of her all come flooding back. Mm-hmm. And the second reason is artistic. This story lodged itself in my subconscious way, way, way back when, uh, for reasons that I really could not have articulated that early in my career, but that I've since learned to recognize as a sign that there's something important going on, something I need to pay attention to. And the third reason is emotional. The pull of this story, interestingly, has not only not waned over the years, but actually grown. The story involves three friends who've gone to visit a fourth friend named Selena, who's dying. Um, They're women who became friends because they were mothers together. And it is only now that I myself have made friends that, because we raised our children together, that I understand the depth of that bond and just how devastating it will be when one day we friends will have to say goodbye. Right. How did you first come across the story? And when, you know, were you pre-children at that point? Yes. I think I first became aware of it because Grace came to read in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she read the story. And I remember it actually... I wouldn't say that it fell flat, but, you know, it's a tough read. This is not her most accessible story. And I think people were a little chagrined that it was so long and you know, <laughs> it wasn't as funny as people were expecting. I think that's what happens when people have, you know, kind of a shtick or they're, mm-hmm. they're perceived that way. And so I think they were waiting for Grace Paley the shtick, and instead they got Grace Paley the experimental writer. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it is a funny story. Yes. Um, if you are prepared for its sense of humor, I suppose. Well, it's funny and it's sad. And of yeah. course, I had been interested in that kind of mixed tone from the beginning. So I, I loved it that it was both so funny and so sad. You know, the way that the humor just makes the sadness of the situation bearable. Mm-hmm. How did you come to know Paley? Oh, <laughs> she was interested in my work. I think the first time I was aware that she knew who I was was as I was reading a, a book of interviews by um, Mickey Perlman. Mm-hmm. And uh, the very first interview, I was like, oh, my God, here's this interview with Grace Bailey. And she started talking about me. I was so <laughs> shocked. Um, and then she showed up at a reading of mine in Harvard Square. And that's the same thing. You know, honestly, it was, you know, Jane Austen showed up or something. <laughs> I almost couldn't read. I was so shocked. And after that, she kind of adopted me and we did become friends. Mm-hmm. And not the type of friends that are in the story. <laughs> no, no, no. Writer friends. Very different. And of course, she's a different generation. Um, I feel like it's taken me a long time. I've had to grow up before I could really understand the story, you know? Mm-hmm. I loved it that she was telling a story of a group of women and that she was trying to find a point of view that would convey just the way that they relate to each other. You know, this story is first person, of course, but. It's told in this kind of first-person collective point of view. It's not first-person plural. It's not just we, we, we. It is at once Faith's story, but it's all of their stories. And also, there's just a way in which these guys, they they read each other's minds. You know, I was fascinated by that. And uh, I think that that's exactly right. I think when people do know each other very, very well, you could hear what they're thinking, you know? And so they don't need to say it out loud. Now, the story is told from the point of view of Faith, who's a recurring character in Paley's stories. Should we know anything about her going into it? Well, Faith, of course, is kind of Paley's alter ego, right? I mean, um, of course, Grace, ever funny. Of course, she would give her, her alter ego a, a name that's a lot like her own. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that Faith is Grace's hopeful side, you know? Faith is always optimistic. I think 
Grace herself was in between Faith and uh, Anne. You know, Anne, who just, you know, reality please. You know? <laughs> okay, well, we're going to talk some more after the story. And now here's Gish Jen reading Friends by Grace Paley. Friends. To put us at our ease, to quiet our hearts as she lay dying, our dear friend Selena said, Life, after all, has not been an unrelieved horror. You know, I did have many wonderful years with her. She pointed to a child who leaned out of a portrait on the wall. Long brown hair, white pinafore, head and shoulders forward. Eagerness, said Susan. Anne closed her eyes. On the same wall, three little girls were photographed in a schoolyard. They were in furious discussion. They were holding hands. Right in the middle of the coffee table framed in autumn colors, a handsome young woman of 18 sat on an enormous horse, aloof, disinterested, a rider. One night, this young woman, Selena's child, was found in a rooming house in a distant city, dead. The police called. They said, Do you have a daughter named Abby? And with him, too, our friend Selena said. We had good times, Max and I. You know that. There were no photographs of him. He was married to another woman and had a new stalwart girl of about six, to whom no harm would ever come, her mother believed. Our dear Selena had gotten out of bed. Heavily, but with a comic dance, she soft-chewed to the bathroom, singing, Those were the days, my friend. Later that evening, Anne, Susan, and I were enduring our five-hour train ride to home. After one hour of silence and one hour of coffee and the sandwiches Selena had given us, she actually stood, leaned her big, soft, excavated body against the kitchen table to make those sandwiches, and said, Well, we'll never see her again. Who says? Anyway, listen, said Susan. Think of it. Abby isn't the only kid who died. What about that great guy, remember, Bill Dalrymple? He was a non-cooperator or a deserter, and Bob Simon. They were killed in automobile accidents. Matthew, Jeannie, Mike. Remember Al Lurie? He was murdered on 6th Street, and that little kid Brenda, who OD'd on your roof ran. The tendency, I suppose, is to forget. You people don't remember them. What do you mean, you people? Anne said. You're talking to us. I began to apologize for not knowing them all. Most of them were older than my kids, I said. Of course, the child Abby was exactly in my time of knowing, in all my places of paying attention. The park, the school, our street. But, oh, it's true. Selena's Abby was not the only one of that beloved generation of our children, murdered by cars, lost to wars, to drugs, to madness. Selena's main problem, Anne said, you know, she didn't tell the truth. What? A few hot, human, truthful words are powerful enough, Anne thinks, to steam all God's chemical mistakes and society's slimy lies out of her life. We all believe in that power, my friends and I, but sometimes... the heat. Anyway, I always thought Selena had told us a lot. For instance, we knew she was an orphan. There were six, seven other children. She was the youngest. She was 42 years old before someone informed her that her mother had not died in childbirthing her. It was some terrible sickness. And she had lived close to her mother's body, at her breast, in fact, until she was eight months old. Phew, said Selena. What a relief. I'd always felt I was the one who killed her. Your family stinks, we told her. They really held you up for grief. Oh, people, she said, forget it. They did a lot of nice things for me, too, me and Abby. Forget it. It was the time. That's what I mean, said Anne. Selena should have gone after them with an axe. More information. Selena's two sisters brought her to a home. They were ashamed that at 16 and 19 they could not take care of her. They kept hugging her. They were sure she'd cry. They took her to her room. Not a room, a dormitory with about eight beds. This is your bed, Lena. This is your table for your things. This little drawer is for your toothbrush. All for me, she asked. No one else can use it, only me, that's all. Artie can't come, Frankie can't come, right? Believe me, Selena said, those were happy days at home. Facts, said Anne, just facts, not necessarily the truth. I don't think it's right to complain about the character of the dying or start hustling all their motives into the spotlight like that. Isn't it amazing enough, the bravery of that private, inclusive, intentional community? It wouldn't help not to be brave, said Selena. You'll see. She wanted to get back to bed. Susan moved to help her. Thanks, our Selena said. 
leaning on another person for the first time in her entire life. The trouble is, when I stand, it hurts me here, all down my back. Nothing they can do about it, all the chemotherapy. No more chemistry left in me to therapeut, huh? Did you know, before I came to New York and met you, I used to work in that hospital? I was supervisor in gynecology, nursing. They were my friends, the doctors. They weren't so snotty then. David Clark, big surgeon. He couldn't look at me last week. He kept saying, Lena, Lena, like that. We were in North Africa the same year, 44, I think. I told him, Davy, I've been around a long enough time. I haven't missed too much. He knows it, but I didn't want to make him look at me. Ugh, my damn feet are a pain in the neck. Recent research, says Susan, tells us that it's the neck that's a pain in the feet. Always something new, said Selena, our dear friend. On the way back to the bed, she stopped at her desk. There were about 20 snapshots scattered across it. The baby, the child, the young woman. Here, she said to me, take this one. It's a shot of Abby and your Richard in front of the school. Third grade? What a day. The show those kids put on. What a bunch of kids. What's Richard doing now? Oh, who knows? Horsing around someplace, Spain. These days it's Spain. Who knows where he is? They're all the same. Why did I say that? I knew exactly where he was. He writes. In fact, he found a broken phone and was able to call every day for a week. Mostly to give orders to his brother, but also to say, Are you okay, Ma? How's your new boyfriend? Did he smile yet? The kids, they're all the same, I said. It was only politeness, I think, not to pour my boy's light, noisy face into that dark afternoon. Richard used to say in his early mean teens, you'd sell us down the river to keep Selena happy and innocent. It's true. Whenever Selena would say, I don't know, Abby has some peculiar friends. I'd answer for stupid comfort. You should see Richard's. Still, he's in Spain, Selena said. At least you know that. It's probably interesting. He'll learn a lot. Richard is a wonderful boy, Faith. He acts like a wise guy, but he's not. You know the night Abby died when the police called and told me? That was my first night's sleep in two years. I knew where she was. Selena said this very matter-of-factly, just offering a few informative sentences. But Anne, listening, said, oh. She cried out to us all, oh, and began to sob. Her straightforwardness had become an arrow and gone straight into her own heart. Then a deep, tear-drying breath. I want a picture, too, she said. Yes, yes, wait, I have one here someplace. Abby and Judy and that Spanish kid, Victor, where is it? Ah, here. Three nine-year-old children sat high on that long-armed sycamore in the park, dangling their legs on someone's patient head. Smooth, dark hair parted in the middle. Was that head kitties? Our dear friend laughed. Another great day, she said, wasn't it? I remember you two sizing up the men. I had one at the time, I thought. <laughs> Some joke. Here, take it. I have two copies, but you ought to get it enlarged. When this you see, remember me, ha-ha. Well, girls, excuse me, I mean, ladies, it's time for me to rest. She took Susan's arm and continued that awful walk to her bed. We didn't move. We had a long journey ahead of us and had expected a little more comforting before we set off. No, she said, you'll only miss the express. I'm not in much pain. I've got lots of painkillers, see? The tabletop was full of little bottles. I just want to lie down and think of Abby. It was true. The local could cost us an extra two hours at least. I looked at Anne. It had been hard for her to come at all. Still, we couldn't move. We stood there before Selena in a row, three old friends. Selena pressed her lips together, ordered her eyes into cold distance. I know that face. Once, years ago, when the children were children, it had been placed modestly in front of Jay Hoffner, the principal of the elementary school. He'd said, No, without training, you cannot tutor these kids. There are real problems you have to know how to teach. Our PTA decided to offer some one-to-one -one tutorial help for the Spanish kids who were stuck in crowded classrooms with exhausted teachers among little middle-class achievers. He had said in a written communication to show seriousness and then in personal confrontation to prove seriousness that he could not allow it. And the Board of Ed itself had said no. All this knownness was to lead to some terrible events in the schools and neighborhoods of our poor, yes-requiring city. But most of the women in our PTA were independent, by necessity and disposition. We were, in fact, the soft-speaking, tough souls of anarchy. I had Fridays off that year. At about 11 a.m., I'd bypass the principal's office and run up to the fourth floor. 
I'd take Robert Figueroa to the end of the hall, and we'd work away at storytelling for about 20 minutes. Then we would write the beautiful letters of the alphabet invented by smart foreigners long ago to fool time and distance. That day, Selina and her stubborn face remained in the office for at least two hours. Finally, Mr. Hoffner, besieged, said that because she was a nurse, she would be allowed to help out by taking the littlest children to the modern, difficult toilet. Some of them, he said, had just come from the Barber's Hills beyond Maricow. Selina said, okay, she'd do that. In the toilet, she taught the little girls which way to wipe, as she had taught her own little girl a couple of years earlier. At three o'clock, she brought them home for cookies and milk. The children of that year ate cookies in her kitchen until the end of sixth grade. Now, what did we learn in that year of my Friday afternoons off? The following. Though the world cannot be changed by talking to one child at a time, it may at least be known. Anyway, Selena placed into our eyes for long remembrance that useful stubborn face. She said, No, listen to me, you people. Please, I don't have lots of time. What I want, I want to lie down and think about Abby. Nothing special. Just think about her, you know. In the train, Susan fell asleep immediately. She woke up from time to time because the speed of the new wheels and the resistance of the old tracks gave us some terrible jolts. Once she opened her eyes wide and said, You know, Anne's right. You don't get sick like that for nothing. I mean, she didn't even mention him. Why should she? She hasn't even seen him. I said, Susan, you still have hemitis, the dread disease of females. Yeah? And you don't? Anyway, he was around quite a bit. He was there every day nearly when the kid died. Abby. I didn't like to hear the kid. I wanted to say Abby, the way I've said Selena, so those names can take thickness and strength and fall back into the world with their weight. Abby, you know, was a wonderful child. She was in Richard's classes every class till high school. Good-hearted little girl from the beginning, noticeably kind. For a kid, I mean, smart. That's true, said Anne. Very kind. She'd give away Selena's last shirt. Oh, yes. They were all wonderful little girls and wonderful little boys. Chrissy is wonderful, Susan said. She is, I said. Middle kids aren't supposed to be, but she is. She put herself through college. I didn't have a cent. And now she has this fellowship. And, you know... She never did take any crap from boys. She's something. Anne went swaying up the aisle to the bathroom. First she said, Oh, all of them, just wonderful. I love Selena, Susan said, but she never talked to me enough. Maybe she talked to you women more about things, men. Then Susan fell asleep. Anne sat down opposite me. She looked straight into my eyes with a narrow squint. It often connotes accusation. Be careful. You're wrecking your laugh lines, I said. Screw you, she said. You're kidding around. Do you realize I don't know where Mickey is? You know, you've been lucky. You always have been, since you were a little kid, Papa and Mama's darling. As is usual in conversations, I said a couple of things out loud and kept a few structured remarks or interior mulling and righteousness. I thought, she's never even met my folks. I thought, what a rotten thing to say, luck. Isn't it something like an insult? I said, Annie... I'm only 48. There's lots of time for me to be totally wrecked. If I live, I mean. Then I tried to knock wood, but we were sitting in plush and leaning on plastic. Wood, I shouted. Please, some wood. Anybody here have a matchstick? Oh, shut up, she said. Anyway, death doesn't count. I tried to think of a couple of sorrows as irreversible as death. But truthfully, nothing in my life can compare to hers. A son, a boy of 15, who disappears before your very eyes, into a darkness or a light behind his own from which neither hugging nor hitting can bring him. If you shout, come back, come back, he won't come. Mickey, 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 we once screamed, as though he were 20 miles away instead of right in front of us on a kitchen chair. But he refused to return. And when he did, 12 hours later, he left immediately for California. Well... Some bad things have happened in my life, I said. What? You were born a woman? Is that it? She was, of course, mocking me this time, referring to an old discussion about feminism and Judaism. Actually, on the prism of isms, both of those two had to be looked at together once in a while. Well, I said, my mother died a couple of years ago, and I still feel it. I think ma sometimes, and I lose my breath. I miss her. You understand that. Your mother's 76. You have to admit, it's nice still having her. She's very sick, Anne said. Half the time she's out of it. I decided not to describe my mother's death. I could have done so and made Anne even more miserable. But I thought I'd save that for her next attack on me. 
These constrictions of her spirit were coming closer and closer together. Probably a great enmity was about to be born. Susan's eyes opened. The death or dying of someone near or dear often makes people irritable, she stated. She's been taking a course in relationships and interrelationships. The real name of my seminar is Skills, Personal Friendship and Community. It's a very good course, despite your snide remarks. While we talked, a number of cities passed us, going in the opposite direction. I had tried to look at New London through the dusk of the windows. Now I was missing New Haven. The conductor explained, smiling, Lady, if the windows were clean, half of you would be dead. The tracks are lined with sharpshooters. Do you believe that? I hate people to talk that way. He may be exaggerating, Susan said, but don't wash the window. A man leaned across the aisle. Ladies, he said, I do believe it. According to what I hear of this part of the country, it don't seem implausible. Susan turned to see if he was worth engaging in political dialogue. You've forgotten Selena already, Anne said. All of us have. Then you'll make this nice memorial service for her, and everyone will stand up and say a few words, and then we'll forget her again for good. What'll you say at the memorial, Faith? It's not right to talk like that. She's not dead yet, Annie. Yes, she is, said Anne. We discovered the next day that give or take an hour or two, Anne had been correct. It was a combination, David Clark's surgeon said, of being sick unto real death and having a tabletop full of little bottles. Now, why are you taking all those hormones? Susan had asked Selena a couple of years earlier. They were visiting New Orleans. It was Mardi Gras. Oh, they're mostly vitamins, Lena had said. Besides, I want to be young and beautiful. She made a joking pirouette. Susan said, that's absolutely ridiculous. But Susan's seven or years younger than Selena. What did she know? Because people do want to be young and beautiful. When they meet in the street, male or female, if they're getting older, they look at each other's faces a little ashamed. It's clear that they want to say, excuse me, I didn't mean to draw attention to mortality and gravity all at once. I didn't want to remind you, my dear friend, of our coming eviction, first from liveliness, then from life. To which, most of the time, the friend's eyes will courteously reply, My dear, it's nothing at all. I hardly noticed. Luckily, I learned recently how to get out of that deep well of melancholy. Anyone can do it. You grab at roots of the littlest future, sometimes just stubs of conversation, though some believe you miss a great deal of depth by not sinking down, down, down. Susan, I asked, you still seeing Ed Flores? Went back to his wife. Lucky she didn't kill you, said Anne. I'd never fool around with a Spanish guy. They all have tough ladies back in the barrio. No, said Susan, she's unusual. I met her at a meeting. We had an amazing talk. Luisa's a very fine woman. She's one of the office worker organizers I told you about. She only needs him two more years, she says, because the kids, the girls, need to be watched a little in their neighborhood. The neighborhood's definitely not good. He's a good father, but not such a great husband. I'd call that a word to the wise. Well, you know me. I don't want a husband. I like a male person around. I hate to do without. Anyway, listen to this. She, Louisa, whispers in my ear the other day. She whispers, Susie, in two years you still want him. I promise you. You got him. Really? I may still want him then. He's only about 45 now. Still got a lot of spunk. I'll have my degree in two years. Chrissy will be out of the house. Two years? In two years, we'll all be dead, said Anne. I know she didn't mean all of us. She meant Mickey. That boy of hers would surely be killed in one of the drugstores or whorehouses in Chicago, New Orleans, San Francisco. I'm in a big, beautiful city, he said when he called last month. Makes New York look like a garbage tank. Mickey, where? Ha ha, he said and hung up. Soon, he'd be picked up for vagrancy, dealing, small thievery, or simply screaming dirty words at night under a citizen's window. Then Anne would fly to the town or not fly to the town to disentangle him, depending on a confluence of financial reality and psychiatric advice. How is Mickey? Selena had said. In fact, that was her first sentence when we came, solemn and embarrassed, into her sunny front room that was full of the light and shadow of windy courtyard trees. We said each in her own way. How are you feeling, Selena? She said, okay, first things first. Let's talk about important things. How's Richard? How's Tonto? How's John? How's Chrissy? How's Judy? How's Mickey? I don't want to talk about Mickey, said Anne. 
Oh, let's talk about him, talk about him, Selena said, taking Anne's hand. Let's all think before it's too late. How did it start? Oh, for God's sakes, talk about him. Susan and I were smart enough to keep our mouths shut. Nobody knows. Nobody knows anything. Why? Where? Everyone has an idea, theories, and writes articles. Nobody knows. Anne said this sternly. She didn't whine. She wouldn't lean too far into Selena's softness. But listening to Selena speak Mickey's name, she could sit in her chair more easily. I watched. It was interesting. Anne breathed deeply in and out, the way we've learned in our Thursday night yoga class. She was able to rest her body a little bit. We were riding the rails at the trough called Park Avenue into the Bronx. Susan had turned from us to talk to the man across the aisle. She was explaining that the war in Vietnam was not yet over and would not be as far as she was concerned until we repaired the dikes we'd bombed and paid for some of the hopeless ecological damage. He didn't see it that way. 50,000 American lives, our own boys. We'd paid, he said. He asked if we agreed with Susan. Every word we said. You don't look like hippies, he laughed. Then his face changed. As a resident face reader, I decided he was thinking, adventure. He may have hit a mother load of late counterculture in three opinionated left-wing ladies. That was the nice part of his face. The other part was the sly, out-of-town husband in New York look. I'd like to see you again, he said to Susan. Oh, well, come to dinner day after tomorrow. Only two of my kids will be home. You want to have at least one decent meal in New York. Kids? His face thought it over. Thanks. Sure, he said. I'll come. Anne muttered. She's impossible. She did it again. Oh, Susan's okay, I said. She's just right in there. Isn't that good? This is a long ride, said Anne. Then we were in the darkness that precedes Grand Central. We're irritable, Susan explained to her new pal. We're angry with our friend Selena for dying. The reason is we want her to be present when we're dying. We all require a mother or mother surrogate to fix our pillows on that final occasion, and we were counting on her to be that person. I know just what you mean, he said. You'd like to have someone around. Mm, a little fuss, maybe. Something like that, right, Faith? It always takes me a minute to slide under the style of her public address system. I agreed. Yes. The train stopped hard in a grinding agony of opposing technologies. Right? Wrong? Who cares? Anne said. She didn't have to die. She really wrecked everything. Oh, Annie, I said. Shut up, will you? Both of you, said Anne, nearly breaking our knees as she jammed past us and out of the train. Then Susan, like a New York hostess, began to tell the man all our private troubles. The mistake of the World Trade Center, Westway, the decay of the South Bronx, the rage in Williamsburg. She rose with him on the escalator, gabbing into evening friendship and a happy night. At home, Anthony, my youngest son, said, Hello, you just missed Richard. He's in Paris now. He had to call Collect. Collect from Paris? He saw my sad face and made one of the herb teas used by his peer group to calm their overwrought natures. He does want to improve my pretty good health and spirits. His friends have a book that says a person should, if properly nutritioned, live forever. He wants me to give it a try. He also believes that the human race, its brains and good looks, will end in his time. At about 11.30, he went out to live the pleasures of his 18-year-old nighttime life. At 3 a.m., he found me washing the floors and making little apartment repairs. More tea, Mom? he asked. He sat down to keep me company. Okay, Faith, I know you feel terrible, but how come Selena never realized about Abby? Anthony, what the hell do I realize about you? Come on, you had to be blind. I was just a little kid and I saw. Honest to God, Ma. Listen, Tonto, basically Abby was okay. She was. You don't know yet what their times can do to a person. Here she goes with her goody goodies. Everything is so groovy, wonderful, far out, terrific. Next thing you'll say people are darling and the world is so nice and round that Union Carbide will never blow it up. I have never said anything as hopeful as that. And why, to all our knowledge of that sad day, did Tonto at 3 a.m. have to add that fact of the world? The next night, Max called from North Carolina. How, Selena, I'm flying up, he said. I have one early morning appointment, then I'm canceling everything. At 7 a.m., Annie called. I have barely brushed my morning teeth. It was hard, she said, the whole damn thing. I don't mean Selena, all of us, in the train, 
None of you seem real to me. Real? Reality, huh? Listen, how about coming over for breakfast? I don't have to get going till after nine. I had this neat sourdough rye. No, she said. Oh, Christ, no, no. I remember Anne's eyes and the hat she wore the day we first looked at each other. Our babies had just stepped howling out of the sandbox on their new walking legs. We picked them up. Over their sandy heads, we smiled. I think a bond was sealed then, at least as useful as the vow we'd all sworn with husbands to whom we're no longer married. Hindsight, usually looked down upon, is probably as valuable as foresight, since it does include a few facts. Meanwhile, Anthony's world, poor, dense, defenseless thing, rolls round and round. Living and dying are fastened to its surface and stuffed into its softer parts. He was right to call my attention to its suffering and danger. He was right to harass my responsible nature. But I was right to invent for my friends and our children a report on these private deaths and the condition of our lifelong attachments. That was Gish Jen reading Friends by Grace Paley. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 1979 and was included in the collection Later the Same Day, which was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in 1985. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Gish, Paley starts this story in the middle of a scene with no explanations, no identification of the characters. We just get to put us at our ease, to quiet our hearts as she lay dying, our dear friend Selena said. Why do you think she opened the story that way? Well, you know, you don't see that much, right? So she's not painting the scene for you. It's all voice. And I think that's a kind of announcement that this story is about voice and it's about talking. She's talking to somebody who just wants to hear the story. And I think that there's a lot, when we think about Grace, she clearly was writing about women and for women, which, you know, this is 1979. And she's already very aware of the male gaze or the male ear. And she's not much interested. Um, She wants somebody who just wants to hear about Selena. And if you're not interested in hearing about her, then don't listen. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's, she's very tough, though, and way ahead of her, her time, I think. Yeah, and just starting with that collective us. Yes. It's a long time before you, you're even aware that Faith is narrating, right? The I doesn't come in for quite a few paragraphs. Um, there's so many stories in this story. So, you know, if you can only imagine if the story came up for workshop today, they would say, you know, you can't have this many people. There's too many characters. There are too many stories, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No one can keep them straight. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what they would say today. You know, Paley didn't care. But I will say that she's not the only writer, you know, who's become quite prominent, who who has dealt with this very question of like, well, does this really have to be one story about one person? I don't know if you remember the story differently by Alice Munro. But, mm-hmm. you know, it starts with her remembering some writing instructor saying to her, too many characters, too many stories, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then just like Paley, you can see them kind of faced with the same problem, which frankly, I think is... I wouldn't say it's a woman's problem, but I would say that maybe there's some kind of large overlap between the set that is women writers and this desire to include a lot of stories. I think those two sets overlap in quite a major way. And you can see them both looking for some kind of form to accommodate that. Yeah, I suppose, you know, Paley just did not underestimate her reader. If she could hold this many stories in mind at once, then so can the person reading. Yes, there's a tremendous self-confidence and also, you know, maybe some of her attitude toward the reader, which is like, here it is, like it or not. 
you know, the like it or not is kind of addressed, I think, to a male reader, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe there's something in that rejection of that male reader that made her more confident. Right. I think it's interesting how we get information about the women in the story. They're sort of parceled out to us one detail at a time. And in a way, the person we hear the least about is Faith. Well, of course, we do hear about her in other stories. So that's part of it. It's not Faith's story. She's just reporting, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, in a short story, this is all wrong, right? To hear so much about (laughs) Selena and Anne Mm -hmm. and Susan. And yet, I will say that this is the way a lot of women talk. I mean, you know, we hear from everybody. It's never just like, okay, you know, you hear all about me and then we're done. (laughs) And since we're inside Faith's perceptions of the others, we learn about her through how she sees her friends. Yeah, and we learn about through those little interactions, you know, that moment where, you know, she just doesn't bring up Richard. And then another thing that's fascinating about this story to me is, you know, how prominent the children are. It's like the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids. And that also just rings very true to life to me. I mean, I just think that it's amazing once you have children, how much room they occupy. Right, right. I mean, on on the other hand, these are all very independent, highly intelligent, engaged women. Right. Well, she doesn't see those things as being opposed, right? Right, exactly. So normally when you have highly intelligent, engaged women and their lives are revolving around motherhood, it feels as though you're doing something sort of anti-feminist. In fact, she's doing the opposite here. Yeah, that's exactly right. Grace felt that all these bonds were made in the sandbox and that that was actually a big political force in her mind. In other words, so she felt that out of those bonds and out of that community and out of concern for the children came a desire to change the world. And in my, my experience, that is also true. You know, so people who maybe weren't paying so much attention to the community, once they have a child in the community, suddenly they're paying a lot more attention. And I think it does really unlock huge amounts of energy. Um, and uh, Paley was very aware of that. So to her, all these things, motherhood, writing, community action, political action, these things were in her mind were all connected. Mm-hmm. She refers to these women as the, the soft-speaking, tough souls of anarchy. <laughs> um, which I think is kind of wonderful. I mean, of course, all four women are community-oriented. You know, they volunteered at the children's school, but not just for their own children. They work with the Spanish-speaking children. They try to teach them English. Selena took them home for cookies. <laughs> um, and so with all of that care and oversight from these smart women... Still, there were disasters. Still, some of these children were lost. Yeah. I was very young during the 60s, so, you know, I don't remember quite this level of loss. But it is true that there were a lot of drug overdoses and a lot of other untoward things went on. You know, so these women have a lot of trouble. I will say, too, that, you know, today... We're not living in the 60s, but the stuff is still happening. Maybe not at quite this level, but... It definitely happens that people do their very best and, you know, looking at them and quality of their lives, you would not believe that the kids would have an outcome like that. But in fact, that is the case. Yeah. Yeah. That's almost an inevitability, you know, a question not of that, that nurture can't solve this problem. Yeah. Well, I think it's one point she talks about this, about Abby, and you don't know yet what the times can do to a person. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. So on the other hand, Anthony Tonto said, why didn't you know about her? Yeah. And she says, well, what do I know about you? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's another thing. You know, I can say that as a mother today, my, my children are in their 20s, 20s and one's 30. Um, it's amazing how much you don't know. You're paying a lot of attention. You have great communication. And there's a huge amount you don't know. So that's something, again, you know, now that I'm older, I realize, oh, you know, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. I know. I think your children are a little younger, Deborah. Am I right? <laughs> uh, yeah, they're 17 and 14. But, you know, there was a huge amount my mother didn't know about me. So I assume the same will be true. Well, you, th- you can't think that you're going to be in the mother's seat, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we have this kind of tragic setup. We have 
Selena dying, three women crowding around her trying to offer comfort or offer something or get their last moment in. Selena's mourning her child who died years ago. And yet, as we said before, the story manages to be funny. How does she pull that off? <laughs> oh, we wish now that Grace were with us so she could explain it. <laughs> yeah. You know, Grace is just like that. I mean, I think at one point her daughter said, you know, Grace doesn't do depression. You mm -hmm. know, I remember she had breast cancer. At one point she lost one of her breasts and, uh, you know, I was full of sympathy. Oh, Grace, I'm so sorry, you know. And she said, eh, Bob didn't like that one anyway. <laughs> I mean, that was Grace. And then again, you know, I thought maybe, well, that was the side of her that I knew. And that if, you know, you knew her better, you would realize that actually, you know, she, she wisecracks and then she goes home and cries. But her daughter said that that's not true. Mm -hmm. So in that way, she's like Faith, you know, that yes. Anthony gets angry with Faith at the end for being sort of optimistic. You know, it's funny. I, I don't know that I would say that exactly that she's optimistic exactly, but she's very, very, very resilient and tough. She could keep her balance through anything. And so I think maybe that goes back to your question about humor. Mm -hmm. You know, this is such an overwhelming situation that she or Faith should kind of be knocked out by this. But she's not. And I would say, you know, that kind of spunkiness, you know, that was very much grace. Yeah. Well, so these women, they, they have their goodbyes. Selena makes them leave to catch their express train. They get on the train and then after their hour of silence and their hour of coffee and sandwiches, they start to argue in yeah. a way. What's happening in that scene? Well, Susan says it, right? She says, you know, we're irritable because our friend is dying. And I think this is very astute. It's not just that they're upset that she's dying, but they're also upset that she's dying and she's not going to be there for them. Mm -hmm. So you feel them kind of at each other's throats at the time that they need each other most. Um, I think it's very revealing that after all of that, that Anne calls Faith first thing in the morning. <laughs> She's so mad at Faith, <laughs> but she calls immediately. Um, it's very familial. I mean, I think that you know, anyone who's been through a death has seen this. People do become quite irritable, and they do start fighting because, you know, they're very upset. Yeah. But what's so interesting to me is that it's all women. It's like, you know, the men are just totally silent. <laughs> they're all married. The guys are like nowhere in sight in these terrible moments where they're fighting like a family. Their family is these other women, these friends, and um, they're not fighting with the men. The men don't matter enough to fight with them, right? And yeah. Max suddenly shows up and says, oh, I'm coming right down. And he's missed everything. He has no idea what's going on. Yeah, he has no idea. She's, she's died already. And, um, and Selena doesn't wait to say goodbye to Max either, right? Yeah. Well, he's in another marriage. No, the men are completely absent except for the sons. And even even one of the sons is absent, too. Yeah, um, yeah. We don't hear about Susan's children, who seem to be doing all right. Yeah, well, she's taking that course. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> her, her biggest beef seems to be that, you know, she feels that her, her course is being kind of maligned. <laughs> she feels that they're making snide comments about it. You know, when actually all Faith has said is that it's about relationships and interrelationships. And you know, Susan is realizing that there's really a lot of criticism in that, comes back and says, excuse me. <laughs> it's actually a very fine course. Yeah, there's something about that conversation on the train, because I suppose what happens between Faith and Anne, the anger or the sort of slightly subsumed hostility between them, or yeah. that Anne feels towards Faith, maybe for her good luck comes out. And I think at some moment, Faith sort of foresees a, a future of enmity between them, you know, that this friendship may be coming to an end. Yeah. You know, I have to say that, you know, although the tension is there, that, you know, I don't really feel like that they're going to fall out. But it is interesting. I mean, it's interesting that that Faith downplays her good luck with Selena, but somehow Anne still registers <laughs> that, right. that um, Faith has been luckier than she and resents her. And it's so interesting the way in which the story, and of course it's very non-linear, it's very not about plot. In the end, you know, you feel like what really matters now is that there could be another rupture. Selena's already left them. And on top of it, there could be a rupture with Anne. And then what? And then again, you feel just how much these relationships matter. These friendships really, 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 really matter. 
Yeah, in a way, I almost read this as three sisters whose mother has died, you know, and, and then yes, is their bond going to survive? Um, yes. Selena was a little older, and she was the mother figure that they wanted crowding around them when they were sick or or in danger. And so they've lost this kind of protective force over them that held them together. And do they then stay together? Yeah. And of course, she was a very particular kind of protective force because she was the one who said everything was okay. And it's interesting that Faith is also kind of accused of being, you know, the goody-goody, everything is a hunky-dory person. She isn't actually as hunky-dory as Selena. Um, Selena's really the one who sort of says, you know, actually, it just wasn't that bad. Even being abandoned in that home, it, it just wasn't that bad, you know? She got her own bed in the home. Yeah, yeah. She wore rose-colored glasses, even more than Faith. And so you do feel like one of the things that's going on is, you know, those glasses are coming off. And now what? Yeah, yeah. And interesting that Selena wore them since she was the one who did lose her child. Yeah, and can they really face, you know, reality as Anne presents it, which is probably closer to the truth, right? That's a tough question for all of us, I think. Yeah, there's an interesting moment where Anne says that those are facts. It's, that's different from the truth. Yeah, exactly. You know that Selena has told them the facts about being left at the home. But what she's told them may not be the truth about how she felt about it. You know, it's, it's one of these questions. Does Selena herself even feel that there's another truth? The story doesn't really go into that. But you just sort of wonder. She makes that tough face and tells them to go away. Is she sending away because there is some truth there? And she just doesn't want to know? We don't really know exactly. But all those questions are kind of all hovering around this story. And what I feel is, you know, it's a very interesting and provocative way. Yeah. I get the sense that she's kind of done mothering them. You know, she's gotten out of her deathbed to make them sandwiches. And yeah, then she just wants some peace and quiet to think about the person she really was a mother to. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When you think about the story, when you talk about the story, it's just tragic. <laughs> I mean, it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> and when you read it, you know, there are laugh-out-loud moments. So it's such a strange story in that way. Yeah, well, I love that kind of thing. And the fact is the matter that is that Faith is able to make her report, and there's a lot that's very affirming in that. And, uh, you know, you feel like Selena may have taken those pills at the end and, you know, before she took those hormones and um, all that's not so great. You know, and yet she really does seem to have managed a pretty peaceful death or, you know, a death that she's choosing. Mm -hmm. So where is the truth here? I don't I don't know. What do you make of that last line? She says, I was, I was right to invent for our friends and my children a report on these private deaths and the condition of our lifelong attachments. It doesn't sound like such a positive report. You know, it's happy in the way that survival is happy. You know what I mean? Like, it's not really happy exactly, but life goes on. So, you know, um, life goes on and she's still, she's narrating. She does have these lifelong attachments. Um, it's interesting that she says these private deaths, plural. So, you know, it's not just Selena. But when all is said and done, the story is here. She was able to tell it. That's not so bad. That's not so bad, but she actually invented it. So to what extent is it a report and to what extent is it an invention? I find that last line is so complicated. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. I was right to invent for my friends. You know, even though she uses that word invent, to me, that word invent sounds just a lot like writing. It's funny, but the story feels very, very, very true to life. Yeah. And um, this does not feel like she sat in a closet and drew on her imagination and just, <laughs> you know, out of thin air uh, came up with a story. It feels like she is, she is reporting. Yeah. And you um, mentioned Faith's a survivor, and that reminds me of her last name, which we don't hear in this story, but in the other Faith stories, we know her last name is Darwin. Yes. Um, hard to have that last name and not think about survival, <laughs> the fittest. <laughs> uh, and in a way, in this group, Faith is probably the fittest. 
or perhaps Susan. Susan's pretty fit as well <laughs> for survival. Yeah, well, Susan seems, she's just kind of undisturbed, it seems. Her life is just in a different register. And uh, the kinds of things that happen to Selena and Anne don't happen to her. Mm-hmm. And she'll happily pick up a guy on the train <laughs> while coming back from, you know, her, her close friend's death. <laughs> oh, um, dear. But which also, you know, reminds me how these women became friends, which was, you know, in the sandbox drawn together by mutual parenthood, motherhood, but not by, you know, complementary personality or they weren't soulmates. It's a friendship of circumstance. Yeah, you're right. You know, they were thrown together by circumstance. But also they were all in their fighting in the elementary school to try to do something for those kids, the kids that they thought, you know, seemed to need more attention. Yeah. And so there were comrades in arms, too. Yeah, they had common cause. So in that way, I don't think it's not such an arbitrary hodgepodge of people. Yeah, there were probably other mothers whose eyes they didn't meet in the sandbox. <laughs> yeah, and other mothers, who, you know, who weren't in there duking it out with the principal. Exactly. Why do you think Selena pulls out those photographs of, of their children as little children and sort of hands them out? Yeah, I think that she literally doesn't have any use for them anymore. Mm -hmm. And she is giving out remembrances of herself and the lies that they had together, third grade. <laughs> what a wonderful time, those kids. Yeah, again, it's very familial. It's just like, a, you know, a mother is dying and she has, you know, she has all these pictures and she says, okay, this one has you in it and your friend and okay, you get this one, you know. <laughs> and in the end, for her, that's all she has to give, really, right? Yeah. I yeah, mean, all she's... she has is this group of friends. I mean... When I sort of say that what these relationships could be, in the end, this, it appears, was Selena's very most important human connection. And I get that. There is a way in which if you are friends with someone and you've known each other since your children were little, you know, in my case, I'm a writer. It may be that, you know, my friend has nothing to do with writing, doesn't even read books. And yet she understands things about my life that no one else will ever understand and vice versa. Because you have seen those kids when they were two and three and four and five and six. So, you know, you could sort of say, well, this is not so chosen. But I would say it may or may not be chosen, but it's very, very deep. Um, I want to talk about Paley's style, this kind of compactness of language. How little she says while saying so much. <laughs> yes. I would love to hear what you, how you think she does that. Well, I don't know if I can say exactly how she does it, but I will say that she does a lot of things where she just, mm, she will just kind of skip ahead in a very interesting way. So you have to be reading rather carefully. You know, she says, um, his friends have a book that says a person should have probably nutrition to live forever. He wants to give me a try. And then she just goes, he also believes that the human race, its brains and good looks will end in his time. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like these two things are kind of not really connected. You know, yeah. he was yeah. like, what is the transition between these two things? You know, and it's just kind of stated there. And then right there we understand, oh, so this is a kid who believes all kinds of things <laughs> because he's young. The way that, you know, we get it totally about Max, you know, it's mm -hmm. just that one section when the next night Max called from North Carolina, how's Selena? I'm flying up. I have one early morning appointment that I'm canceling everything. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was total cluelessness and disconnection. Yeah. We get it all right there. And nobody even says like, oh, my God, Max, leave it to Max to be completely too late. She doesn't tell us that, but she just drops it in there and we totally get it. It's like, oh, not only that, we kind of kind of understand why they broke up too, right? It's kind of true of, of all the men in, the, in these stories that they're just not moving at the same pace as the women. <laughs> <laughs> Their minds don't move at the same pace. They're lagging behind. They're out there, you know, not noticing, not noticing things. No, no. And yeah. these, these women are such incredible observers. I mean, there's that one moment when she says that the night Abby died was the first night she slept in two years. And yeah. Anne listening says, oh, oh. And that, that's all Paley has to write. We know what Anne yeah, means, right? Yeah. She's, it says her straightforwardness had become an arrow and gone right into her own heart. Um, yeah. And that's 
somehow what these sentences do, you know, they're like arrows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I really admire about a story like this. I mean, if I had students who were writing a story like this, and, you know, I would sort of say, you know, it's just too many characters. And one of the reasons you would say that is because you would have trouble keeping them apart. But the characterization is so clear, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, she really understands who they are, and you get that. So as soon as you hear one line of dialogue, you know, the whole damn thing, I don't mean Selena, all of us in the train, you know who's speaking. And when you asked about her compactness, there's a kind of command of the world and of the characters that enables her to move so fast. Mm -hmm. So like when Anthony says, he wants to give me a try. He also believes that the human race, his brains and good looks will end in his time. I mean, she knows this character. You don't feel like she's making it up as she goes along. She knows him. So she could just throw in this extra line about him. I guess it's sort of like he's just very, very, very deeply imagined. And so she could pull this stuff up. She doesn't have to give you a lot of description about him. He's just there. He's there for us because he's there for her. Right. And then he goes out and comes back and finds her, you know, washing the floor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 3 a.m. <laughs> and that's another thing. She doesn't have to say, and I was so upset. I couldn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's very clear. She's doing household things, and we understand it's because of the grief. Yes. Yes, yes. We understand. But all that stuff is going, it's going very, very, very fast. And um, yeah, meanwhile, we even hear about Louisa, <laughs> <laughs> the office worker organizer who said, you know, You can have my husband another two years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's what I mean about the men. They're they're like many beats behind. He doesn't get to decide which women he goes with. (laughs) He's parceled out. He's got to be with Louisa for two years and then Susan, you know. Well, that's it. It's a really female-centric world, right? Yeah. You know, we don't think of the women as having that kind of agency, right? But here in Grace Paley's world, they do. Yeah. They do. What a wonderful thing. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she believed that through her writing that she was making a kind of community of people. She really believed in imagined communities, and she really believed that by imagining this community that she could change the world and that we would see our own communities in her community and that we would feel affirmed. And to borrow a, a phrase from Shamas Haney, uh, steadied. You know, when he said poetry is steadying. Mm-hmm. You know, I do feel that that's one of the functions of fiction, to be steadying. And I think that Paley believed that. So she would write these things and that we would recognize our own agency in this. We would recognize our own networks of women. We would understand the potency of that and that it would go straight from the page right out into the world. And I think when you look at the way that her work has survived, I think she was right. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, The people who are still reading Grace Paley today, I mean, they are passionate about her. It isn't just like, oh, I really admire this story. (laughs) It's not that. They are just completely, completely, completely her acolytes, really. And so I think that um, when I look at the story and I look at kind of this world that she imagined, I, I look at the way she turns the family upside down, marriage is upside down. It's all upside down. And so we have this world where, yes, there are lots of problems, but women are in the middle of it. And I think that by imagining that world, she helps us kind of think, you know what? I'm not wasting my time when I, you know, when I hang out with these kids. It's not all just time away from my writing. Actually, these things go together. And actually, what am I doing with my writing if not making the world better for my children? There's a kind of wholeness of vision here that I still find just incredibly inspiring. It's maybe only one idea about art, but it's certainly a very powerful one. Well, thank you so much, Gish. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure, Deborah. Grace Paley, who died in 2007, was a short story writer, poet, and political activist. Her books include the story collections Enormous Changes at the Last Minute and Later the Same Day, and the poetry volumes Leaning Forward and Begin Again. A Grace Paley Reader, a collection of her stories, nonfiction, and poems, edited by Kevin Bowen and Nora Paley, was published in 2017. Gish Chen is the author of nine books, including the novels World and Town, which was nominated for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award, and The Resisters, and the story collections Who's Irish and Thank You, Mr. Nixon, which was published in February. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1990. 
You can download more than 170 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.